All right, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. I want to say two quick things before we pray. One, someone came to me uh, right as we were getting started this morning and said, you're going to have to preach extra loud today because we do not have a curtain dividing uh, the service from our children. So if you have ever wondered how much sound that that little sheep blocks, you are about to find out this morning. Okay. And the second thing I wanted to say is there are a lot of visitors uh, here this morning and that have been dropping in in recent uh, weeks. And if you are here, I want to invite you to stick around after we're done. And the pastors of this church, myself and Ryan and Greg, would love a chance to meet with you. And so hang around and we'd like a chance to talk with you and encourage you. And we usually hang out by the doors right as we're done. All right, we are going to pray. We're going to call on the name of the Lord. We're going to ask for help this morning to be taught by the Holy Spirit from God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today. God, thank you for your goodness. God, thank you for your faithfulness to this church. Lord, thank you for the power of your Word and how many times, Lord, you have bore witness to it in our life. Lord, your word is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And we pray this morning that you would dispense light from your word and grace from your word and help from the Holy Spirit. Lord, give us what is needed. Give us what is needed. Lord, we come to you this morning and we ask for grace and even more grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things we all have in common in the room today is we are all born with desires to achieve things, to, to, to do things. And this is part of the way that God made us. And you can see this in very early childhood in that famous question that we ask children, what do you want to be when you grow up? And all those answers come. You know, some are expected, some are unexpected. I want to be a baseball player. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a mommy when I grow up. I want to be a pilot. I want to be a nurse. That's that desire to achieve that is planted within us as image bearers of God. But I also want us to remember that's, the, that's not the only thing true of us. Another thing we all have in common is that we are born with a sinful nature. We are descendants of our fallen forefather, Adam. We have a sinful nature from the moment of conception that is constantly focused on self. By nature, we love ourselves. By nature, we live for ourselves. And so by nature, not only are we ambitious and do we have ambitions to do things, we have sinful ambitions, disordered desires to achieve. Either we desire to achieve the wrong things or we desire to achieve the right things for the wrong reasons or in the wrong ways. And the best biblical word to describe the centrality of self in the fallen man is the word pride. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about pride. 
Pride is a sin that every child of Adam is guilty of because it's deeply ingrained in our sinful nature. And even among Christians, regenerated Christians, pride is a sin that we have to constantly put to death. By nature, we are prideful and only by the grace of God can we become humble and walk humbly before our God. And the very first step in becoming a humble person and growing in humility is to realize you are prideful. It's just true. If you can't ever admit that about yourself, you have no chance at humility. It starts right there. We are a prideful people that need to humble ourselves before God and man. And the Lord Jesus loves us. He loves us. He does not leave us in our pride. He doesn't leave us in any sin. He desires to confront it. He wants to deal with it. He wants to shine the light of his word on our pride. And that's how I want to encourage you to come to the word this morning with that heart uh, of a sick patient going to a doctor. As we come to the Lord Jesus, our teacher, with that prayer saying, help me, Lord, help me, Lord, kill my pride. Let's read God's word together this morning. Matthew 18, the first four verses. We'll jump right in. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. I want us to get our eyes on verse 1, and our passage begins in verse 1, where the disciples express that sinful ambition that we just talked about. They expressed it in the form of a question to Jesus Christ. And the question is this, who is the greatest. Who is the greatest? And I want you to notice three things about this question. Number one, I want you to notice that this question has a sinister religious twist to it. Okay? The question is not who is the greatest king? Who is the greatest ruler? Who is the greatest father? Who is the greatest husband? Who is the greatest athlete? Not who is the greatest doctor. This is not who is the goat. The question is, who is the greatest in the kingdom? This is a question of spiritual pride and Christian greatness, spiritual greatness. And that question reveals that they see in themselves as in a competition with one another to be the greatest Christian, the greatest To have a reputation as the greatest servant of Jesus. This is spiritual pride. As we read the Gospels, we find out that this is not the only time that this theme shows up among the twelve. Where Jesus has to lean in and correct the way that they're thinking. This happens often. 
You see it again just in Matthew's gospel. It happens again in Matthew 20. Happens again in Matthew 23. We're in Matthew 18. We're on the road to the cross in Matthew 26. And so as Jesus approaches his final days where he is going to be withdrawn from this world. It's like he keeps having to drill this discipleship lesson in these men. That it's the lowest ones who will be exalted in his kingdom. It's the lowest ones. Now, I think the repetitive nature of this theme in the gospel should be a warning to us. And here's what I mean. If the apostles continue to struggle with this temptation to spiritual pride. And if Jesus has to lean in several times in his final days to make sure that they understand this lesson, think about how guarded we should be as followers of Jesus, how on guard we should be for the sinful ambition of the old man to creep into the Christian life and to corrupt our desires to please the Lord. We ought to be warned by this. We ought to be warned by it. And think about how ugly Spiritual pride is. It's, it, it's the ugliest form of pride because everything in the spiritual realm, everything in the Christian life is a gift of special grace. All of it. Faith is a gift from God. Repentance is a gift from God. Character is a gift from God. Abilities and giftings are a gift of God. Their fruitfulness is a gift of God. In other words, the very nature of the Christian life undercuts all boasting. All of it is grace. And spiritual pride boasts about the gracious gifts of God. It's an ugly form of this sin. I want you to notice two other things about this question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Second, I want you to notice that their question is about a present status, not a future status. Not what's going to happen when I go to heaven, how am I going to stack up then, but a present status. And you see this twice in this passage. Once in verse 1, again in verse 4. You have the word is. And that's in the present tense. And so the question is, they want to know how they stack up against one another right now. This is not a question of, you know, what's going to happen in the future. How do I stack up right now? Now, this is important and we'll come back to this as we close. Sometimes this passage is interpreted like this, that you need to be lowly and you need to be a servant now so that one day you become great in the kingdom of heaven. You need to serve and you need to be humble now so that you can get what you really want, greatness and notoriety in the kingdom of heaven. But I think that's a misreading of this passage. Jesus is teaching us in verses 1 through 4 how to be great right now. This is what it means to be great right now in the kingdom of heaven. We'll come back to that. Number three, I want you to notice about this question. They do not ask how to be great. Okay, that would be an adjective. They ask how to be the greatest. That's a comparative adjective. 
And so I want you to notice that in their question, you see that they are in competition with one another. They want to know how they stack up against their brother. This is not someone coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I love you. I want to give my whole life for you. I want to glorify you with my life. I want to be a fruitful Christian. This is someone coming to Jesus and saying, I want to outdo my brother. I want to be greater than everybody else around me. I want to name for myself in the kingdom of Jesus. And just asking that question tips us off that they are misunderstanding the nature of Jesus' kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus has one hero. And it's not us. It's not you. It's him. He's the king. He is the great one. He shares his glory with none. So one thing I want us to learn about the sin of pride, and I'm going to give you three of these this morning, is that pride is disordered. It's, It's a disordered way of viewing God. It's a disordered posture towards others, and it's it's a disordered posture towards ourself. And the first, from this question that I want you to notice, from that word greatest, is that it's very core, essentially, the sin of pride is essentially competition towards others. You are created to love your neighbor as yourself. Pride is that disordered posture to your neighbors that you see yourself in constant competition with those around you. Pride is wanting to outdo others, have more than others, to be more highly esteemed than others, more powerful than others, thought to be smarter than others, more beautiful than others, more prominent than others, and on and on and on. This is why two synonyms... Of pride in scripture are the words boasting on the one hand and coveting on the other. Both of those words are are a disordered posture towards our neighbors. And what does boasting do? They both see yourself in competition towards your neighbor, but in a different way. Boasting looks at your neighbor and says, I got something you don't. Ha ha. Competition. But envy and coveting. Is that posture towards your neighbors where they have something you don't. You see yourself in competition with them and you want it. Both of those are forms of pride. And this sinful, competitive desire to outdo or outhave one another. C.S. Lewis explains this well. The competitive nature of pride in his essay, which he titles The Greatest Sin... In one of the chapters of his book, Mere Christianity, he says this. Pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud to be rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became richer or cleverer or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. I want you to know that about this sin. Pride is always asking this question, this internal dialogue in the human heart. How do I stack up against everybody else? And I want to say this. What a wicked monster to unleash in the human heart. 
What a wicked monster. And, and, and many of us across this room could bear witness to this. Of the bitter fruit that comes in our life when we begin comparing ourselves to one another. This is a wicked, wicked monster in the human heart. And Jesus mercifully confronts it. He mercifully confronts this pride in his disciples. And what he does is the Lord Jesus redefines greatness. He says, you want to be great? Okay, that's, that's fine, but you're aiming for the wrong thing. And there's a verse that Ron mentioned last week, Romans 12, verse 2. And the Apostle Paul tells us, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And I want you to know that the Christian life always works like that. I love that verse for this reason. That verse tells me, that any time in my life that I'm going to become like Jesus, more like Jesus Christ, any spiritual transformation is, in my life is going to be preceded by a renewal of the mind. That God is going to change the way I think. He's going to throw some light from His Word on something. I'm going to see it in a way I've never seen it. And that's going to be the catalyst of spiritual transformation. That's what Jesus is doing here. He sees a problem in their life. They're thinking about greatness wrong. And so he's going to pump their mind full of light, full of truth. He wants them to be transformed by the renewal of their mind. And so Jesus begins to redefine greatness. And we see this in verse 2. Jesus brings forward an object lesson. And we are told that he takes uh, an unexpected one. And sets this child in their midst. It's like, okay, you want to talk about greatness? Let's talk about greatness. He doesn't go for a king or a governor or a soldier or a, you know, someone of notoriety. He sets a child in their midst. It's surprising. It's counterintuitive. And so many times in the Gospels we see this. That Jesus' kingdom is that upside down kingdom. Or you could call it the, really the right side up kingdom. Is this completely opposite of the value system of this world. He sets a child in their midst to draw their attention to true greatness. What is it about a child that Jesus wants to draw their attention to? Now as we read the Bible... We learn a lot of things that the Bible teaches us about the nature of children and the nature of sin and the extent of depravity. And so we know that Jesus cannot be saying or cannot be drawing attention to, look how innocent this child is. Look how morally innocent this child is. That is the greatest in the kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus is full of Jesus and sinners, and that's it, okay? Jesus and sinners, and that's it. So Jesus is not drawing attention to the moral innocence of this child. Our Bible tells us that we were brought forth in iniquity. We were conceived in sin. That's the language of King David in Psalm 51. You know, Jesus is using this child as an object lesson. And I want to mention at least two things that he intends to draw their attention to as he puts that child in their midst. One is the trusting disposition of children. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. And the second is the lowly status 
of children. They have a, by nature, they have a trusting disposition and a lowly status. I believe that's the object lesson as Jesus sets that child in their midst and calls attention to greatness and his kingdom. Let's take the first one first. Children by nature trust their parents. The younger the child and the healthier the family, the clearer this principle is. Children by nature trust their parents. Loud thunderstorm in the middle of the night. Kid wakes up, scared, crying. Who do they run to? Mama and daddy. That's a natural thing. Nobody had to teach them to do that. Okay? 4.30 in the afternoon, belly's growling. Child runs. And who do they ask? What's for dinner tonight? Mom and daddy. Okay? In other words, there's something ingrained in this parent-child relationship that children learn that their parents are the ones that take care of their needs. The younger the child, the healthier the family, the clearer that principle. By nature, children also have a lowly status. So think about it. In the hierarchy of the family, they're not at the top, they're at the bottom. They're under the authority of their father. They're also under the authority of their mother. They have the lowest status in the family. Now, as we transition to adulthood from children to adults, both of these things change. Both of these natural dynamics change. We transition from that trusting dependency on our parents to self-sufficiency. And rightly so. I mean, it's, 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 it's fine and good and maybe even cute for a seven-year-old to say, Mama, what's for dinner tonight? But if you're a 30-year-old asking your mom what's for dinner tonight, something's wrong. You cook your own dinner, right? We get that. Like there's some kind of natural progression here that if that childlike dependency on my parents stays too long, something's off. Something's wrong. And it's the same with the lowly status of a child. As they come to adulthood, they exchange the lowly status of a child to the higher status of an adult. The Bible says that a man leaves his father and mother and joins himself to a wife and the two become one flesh and another family unit is created. Another hierarchy, so to speak. That's the object lesson. Jesus Christ observes... Something about the natural trusting disposition of children and the natural lowly status of children is a perfect illustration of saving faith. There's, there's something about this picture. This is like the parables in the Gospels that two things are thrown beside each other. An earthly story with this heavenly meaning. Jesus is pulling out an analogy here to cast some light on his kingdom. This is an illustration of saving faith. He says it in no uncertain terms. Verse 3. That there will be no one in his kingdom. Listen. No one. Who does not enter it like a child. None. There will be no one in his kingdom. That does not come like a child. No one. Who will, who will not enter by accepting that lowly status. In his kingdom. Verse 3. He calls for a conversion. You can see this in two words. He says, turn and become. Turn and become. And those, those two words, you know, they cast some light 
on on the supernatural nature of entering the kingdom of God. This is a work of grace. The word turn presupposes that you're going in the wrong direction and you need to turn and go in the right direction. That's the language of conversion. Another way the Bible says that is you need to repent. You're going in the wrong direction. You're living a life of sin. You're living a life for yourself and you need to turn. But the word become presupposes that you are something now. That he's calling you to be something that you're not right now. You need to become a child. And that means you're not right now. You don't have the humility of the child. But you need to become a child. And you need to be transformed into something that you're not. And that's what it means to be a Christian. This is a supernatural transformation. This is, In other words, this is the same thing that Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3. You must be born again. Or you cannot enter the kingdom of Jesus. And so true greatness, as defined by Jesus, begins with conversion. Not a PhD. Not an awesome job. True greatness begins with entering the kingdom like a little child. True greatness begins with conversion. This radical turning away from self. From our old distrusting nature. From our old high esteem of ourselves and coming with the faith of a child, bowed down with that lowly status of a servant. Nobody comes into the kingdom except like that, Jesus says. Now, this clarifies the two other aspects of pride. Remember, it's a disordered view towards God, towards others, and towards myself. Pride thinks. Too highly of itself. And pride is distrusting towards God. In other words, pride is the exact opposite of these two features of childlikeness that we just covered. Okay? That natural disposition of a child to trust their parents. Pride is the exact opposite. There's an ongoing debate in church history about which sin is the root of all sin. Sometimes you'll hear it as pride. Other times you'll hear it as unbelief. And I think if you thought about that for long enough, you'd realize they have tremendous similarities. In other words, I think they're two sides of the same coin. What is unbelief? Unbelief is an unwillingness to take God at His word. An unbelief is... I will not believe the word of God. I won't look to him. Well, say that negatively. If you're not looking to God and God's word, who are you looking for? Self. And what is that? Pride. And so on the one hand, unbelief refuses to look to God. And on the other hand, pride refuses to look away from self. Pride is essentially unbelieving towards God, distrustful towards God and his word. Say, what do you mean? A prideful man does not trust the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. A humble man believes the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. A prideful man is not willing to bow down before the king, take that lowly status of a child and say, Jesus, you are Lord, you are master, and I am your servant. A prideful man refuses to bow 
and refuses to trust because he refuses to look away from himself. He thinks too highly of himself. Jesus says that this is the doorway. If you don't come like a child, he says you cannot come at all. There's no other door. There's no other way to come. And think about what this clarifies on the front end. That if you have to enter this kingdom like a child, tell, t- think about what this tells us about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the master. Everybody has to bow to him. Everybody has to trust him. The kingdom is all about the king. Not about you. You can't smuggle that ego into the kingdom. It gets handled right on the front end, right at the door, right at the entry point in the kingdom. One of the things that we need to remember about apologetics and engaging the unbelieving arguments of this world is that no one, no one becomes a Christian by figuring it out. Nobody. You don't come in the kingdom like that. It can be helpful. It can knock down a lot of you know, obstacles in your way. But coming into the kingdom is never, ever like figuring out a mathematics problem. In other words, nobody enters into the kingdom of Jesus with the posture of a philosopher saying, Eureka, I've studied it forever and I finally figured it out. Nobody comes in the kingdom like that. You only enter the kingdom with the posture of a child bowed down to Jesus as king, trusting in your father in heaven. The humblest act that you can ever do is to turn and believe the gospel. And think about this. The opposite is true. The most prideful thing that you could ever do in your whole life is refuse to turn and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. Jesus continues on in verse 4 regarding Christian greatness. And and he basically says it like this. The way you become great is the same way you came in. Okay, In other words, there's not one set set of qualifications for entering the kingdom and another set of qualifications for becoming great in the kingdom. The way you grow in the kingdom is the same way you come into the kingdom. And he says in verse 4, you have to become humble. You have to humble yourself. Like a child, that's the great one in the kingdom. Childlike humility. And so what is Jesus doing? He's redefining greatness. He's flipping it upside down. Is he not? Is he not? The worldly version, how does that, how does that work? How does that sound? Worldly greatness. Well, worldly greatness is like a pyramid scheme with the VIPs at the top. And everybody else down up under them. But Jesus flips this and he says, no, no, the great ones in the kingdom embrace the lowly role, not the VIPs at the top, but the lowly role. They are servants. They are humble. They are childlike. That's greatness in the kingdom of Jesus. Let's come full circle. Christians. If you want to please God with your life and you do, if you're a Christian, you love him. You have not seen him, but you love him. If you want to please God with your life, Jesus is teaching here that you have to get over yourself. You have to. 
Your worst enemy is you. You have to get over yourself. We find a commandment in the Gospels. One of the ways that Jesus calls the crowds to respond to his teaching is if anyone desires to follow me, he must what? Deny himself. Following Jesus is denying yourself. They're, they're, they're mutually exclusive. They're mutually exclusive. To follow Jesus as Lord is to deny my old master myself. We have to get over ourselves. Some of you think much too highly of yourself. I mean, just think about that. That's why this warning is here in God's word. It's here to awaken that in us, to convict us of our sins. Some of you think too highly of yourself. It's just true. Whether it's too highly of your abilities, your character, your opinions, your achievements, your family, your marriage, your occupation, your body, and on and on and on. And here's the thing. You have to stop believing your own propaganda. You're not that great. Jesus is great. You're really not. You're not that great. This is one of the, you know, one of the best things that you, could, that you could possibly do if you're struggling with this is, number one, get married. Okay? And number two, join a church. And I say that for this reason. Peter says it this way. 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourself with humility towards one another. Towards one another. Humility is discernible in relationships. I mean, think about it. Everybody can be a legend in their own mind if you never have to deal with people. But what is it? What happens when you get in that marriage relationship or in this covenant membership, you know, uh, uh, local church membership, a relationship with one another where this pride, it just leaks out. It comes out. You can't believe your own propaganda. You have to get over yourself. Jesus is not impressed with any of us. I mean, think about that. He's just not. And he never has been. He's never, he's never been impressed with any Christian. Like, man, I really got to have you on my team. It never happens that way. The greatest Christian in the history of the church had to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We are sinners. He is the king. Some of you have desires to do and achieve. Spiritual desires to achieve things for the Lord that have been hijacked by sinful ambition. In the same way that they come to Jesus, they want to be a great Christian. They want prominence and notoriety. Some of you are dealing with that. Let Jeremiah 45.5 land on you this morning. I love the clarity of this verse. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. That's the word of God. Seek them not. Don't do that. This is a road to nowhere. Jesus is trying to awaken us with his word. We're thinking about it wrongly. Greatness for ourselves is a wrong way of thinking about it. Childlike humility. That's what he's drawing us to. Childlike humility. How do we do this? So maybe this is where you are this morning. Okay. I want to think about it rightly. I want to pursue humility. I want to fight pride. I want to, get, I want to get this right. I want to heed the word of God. How do we do it? How do we do it? I want to make the question even sharper than that. Think about how the world that we live in, the generation that we live in, makes this such a heightened fight 
heightened temptation for pride and vanity and the love of self. I don't know if you ever realized this before, but we live in the generation of selfies. I mean, that's pretty new on planet Earth. You can Google this this afternoon. Maybe you've wondered, I wonder how many selfies are uploaded to the Internet every day. What if the answer was 93 million? That's the world that we live in. And so to sharpen the question, how do Christians crucify self and kill pride in a world of selfies, in a world of self-love? How do we do it? One answer, it's the wrong answer, is the path of self-deprecation. Self-deprecating. Okay, I don't want to be prideful, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to always tell people how bad I am. I'm going to always talk about how much I've fallen short, how much I just never measure up. And this is often mistaken in the church for humility. It's not real humility. It doesn't work to kill the sin. It just exchanges pride for another form. Think about it this way. A superiority complex and an inferiority complex have the same root thinking about yourself. Can't get the thoughts off of yourself. They're both still focused on self. In other words, a person who is always saying they're nobody is actually still obsessed with thinking about themselves. And so self-deprecating can't kill the sin. That's not the right answer. It won't work. I will never forget an older man sharing this with me. I was in college. And he shared with me the similarity of a boasting heart And a doubting heart. And he said they're both prideful. Because both of them set aside the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to think about that. Both of them refuse to look to Christ and look to self. The boaster enters into the presence of God. Ignores the righteousness of Jesus. And says, Lord, look what I did. Draws attention to his performance and to his works. But the doubter does the same thing in a different way. The doubter enters into the presence of God, sets aside and and ignores the righteousness of Jesus and says, Lord, look what I did. And draws attention to his sins. And can't get eyes off of self and that gaze fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the object of faith. In other words, both of those dispositions to look to self Is essentially pride. We were made for Christ. We were made to gaze upon Christ. And I'm telling you. That perspective will change your life. Self-deprecation is not the path to humility. We need a Christward gaze. The answer is not self-deprecation. But in self-forgetfulness. True humility is self-forgetfulness. It's not thinking less of yourself. That you think you're a five. And you need to think you're a three. On a scale, it's just stop thinking about yourself, period. It's that self is crucified and set to the side. It's not entering into the picture, exercising its dominion. It's denied, crucified, self-forgetfulness. C.S. Lewis again, he says this, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble person, That they will be what most people call humble nowadays. 
He will not be the sword who is always telling you he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about them is that they took a real interest in you. He will not be thinking about humility because he won't be thinking about himself at all. That sounds like Philippians 2, 3, that the word of God commands us to consider others as more significant than ourselves. That's real humility. Not just telling everybody how awful you are, but that crucified ego that actually for the first time is set free to serve others, to love others. Self-forgetfulness is the only way to truly serve others. Okay. I want to forget myself. How do I do it? How do I forget myself? Because I just tried while you were saying that and I can't do it. Can't forget myself. The secret to humility is the secret to everything else in the Christian life. The gospel. (laughs) I mean, there is no special sauce besides the gospel. The gospel is the secret. It's the root of everything in the Christian life. The finished work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the secret to humility. In other words, if you want to live a truly humble life, where you know self is set to the side in a real way and you're truly you know living to honor God and love your neighbor the only way to do it is to live in light of the ultimate verdict the finished work of Jesus i want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4 and i want you to get your eyes on two verses very quickly The Apostle Paul gives us a grid for three different courtrooms. Let's read it together. 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. I want you to notice three courts. Others, self, and God. Three observations. Paul did not care what other people thought. Paul didn't even care what he himself thought. What dominated his life is what God thought. It was a Godward way of living. Now, let me carefully explain that. Okay? There, if all you have is number one, I don't care what anybody thinks. There's nothing humble about this. Don't beat your chest about that. There's nothing spiritual about not caring what other people think about you. Okay? <laughs> don't, don't, don't go down this road. Okay? Planet Earth is full of people who don't give a rip what other people think about them. I mean, think about this. Do you think that Vladimir Putin is losing sleep right now at night over what other people think about him? No, he's not. But the way that this happens in in the world is the way the world drowns out the, the voice of others is it turns up the volume of the voice of self. Okay? 
Think about this with me. This is how it works in the world. I don't give a rip about what you think because, turn up the volume, because I know what I think. Okay? The whole LBGTQ gospel movement is built off of that right there. I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to turn up the volume. I'm going to do me. I care what I think. That's not what Paul is talking about here. It's not, I don't care what you think because I know what I think. Paul goes further than that. He says, I don't even care what I think. He says, I don't even care what I think. And, and, and he says, you know, uh, even, even the fact that he has a clean conscience, he says, he's not, he's not commended for that. That's not his commendation. That's not his comfort. He's totally dominated by the ultimate verdict. It is God who judges me. That verdict from the Lord drives everything in his life. And I believe that's the path, the only path to true humility and self-forgetfulness. The only path. The gospel is the only thing that can settle the question of the ultimate verdict. Because Christians don't have to wait to the final day to know what God says. We don't. That's the glorious good news of the gospel, that we have the free gift of justification, that our God has already rendered a verdict on our behalf in Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that can set you free from a life of posturing and performing and angling and reaching and grabbing for status. The gospel is the only thing that gives the ultimate verdict prior to the performance. You get the verdict before you even do the acts of obedience. This is the free gift of Jesus Christ. We don't have to angle for status or superiority. It's been freely given to all who believe. It's been freely bestowed by our King. The, the free gift of righteousness to all who believe. In other words, Christians and only Christians can live with this deep-seated confidence. It is finished. It's done. I'm not trying to angle to hear something on the final day. Jesus inter intervened for me. He finished a work on, on my behalf. The trial is over for the Christian. The verdict is rendered for the Christian. Christians don't live in the courtroom anymore. They don't live in the courtroom of their own ego. They don't live in the courtroom of other people's opinions. And the courtroom of God, the verdict is already rendered. It's done, justified in Jesus Christ. There's nothing left to angle for. From this ultimate verdict of justification by faith alone in Christ alone comes a deep sense of acceptance, freely given, that sets us free to live humbly before God and man. It's the only thing that can do it. It's, there, there is no other secret. In other words, humility is a gospel fruit. Humility grows in the soil of the gospel. The most humble person that you will ever meet is the person who marinates in these truths uh, of Jesus Christ and his free gift to all who believe. It's the only thing that can turn that gaze away from self and the praise of man is being accepted by God. The gospel is the secret 
One last pitfall to avoid. As we're pursuing humility and we want to kill pride. Comes full circle to their question is about present status. Not future status. In other words, don't interpret this passage to mean that childlike servant humility is merely the means to get what you want. That's disordered. That's backwards. In other words, don't get duped here. That Man, I really want to be a great Christian. And I really want to be above all my brothers and sisters. And I want to name for myself in the kingdom of Jesus. Don't think Jesus is writing you a prescription of how to get that selfish desire. He's not. He's redefining greatness of this is what it means to be great right now. Humility is not just a means to get what you want. It's better to see humility as an end in itself. If the reason you serve others is to get what you want, you are not humble. You are still selfish. If the reason that you serve your brothers and sisters is to outdo your brothers and sisters, and this is just a deferred rewards game, that's not real humility. And it's not real love. You're not in competition with the body of Christ. Better to see humility As an end in itself, not just a pathway to greatness. The one who is humble is great. That is the teaching of Jesus. Present tense right now. The one who is humble is great. Why? Because when you're humble, you're like him. And Jesus is great. Jesus is the humble, lowly servant of the Lord. And when Christian, you are like him, he is great. And when you are prideful, you are not like him. When you are humble, you are like your Lord. Jesus says this in Matthew 11, verse 29. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Lowly in heart. That's what that word humility means. Is that lowliness, that low posture before God and man. Two paths. If you want to be thought of as great, then the world has a lot of schemes to sell you. So if what you want is to be thought of as great, there's a lot of wisdom that the world would be glad to sell you. Path number two. But if you actually want to be great, not just thought great, but actually be great, then humility is the way. The way of Jesus Christ. In Mark 10 verse 45, Jesus said that he came not to be served. That's amazing. That is amazing that the one who was equal with God didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he took on the form of a servant. He emptied himself, became obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It is amazing that he came From eternity into time, not to be served, but to serve. And Jesus says to give his life as a ransom for many. How much, Christian, how much should you love humility? How much should you highly esteem it? 
It's at the very core of the Christian gospel. It is the servant heart of Jesus. It is the servant heart of Jesus that drove him to give his life as a ransom for many. No servant heart in Jesus, no gospel. How much should you love humility and lowliness and that servant status, the servant of the Lord? It is that heart in Jesus Christ that drove him to pay our debt, to give his life as a ransom for many. And it couldn't have been any other way. It had to be that he didn't come to be served, but to serve. Our hands weren't clean enough to serve him. We had to be washed in the blood of the lamb. We couldn't serve our way to heaven. I want you to love this about your Savior. He is gentle and lowly. I want you to highly esteem humility. And don't neglect it. Don't set it to the side. Don't ignore it. It's at the very center of Jesus' answer of greatness in his kingdom. And so, brothers and sisters, let's resolve to pursue humility by the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up our hearts to you today and we ask for grace. Lord, we pray that your word would run to and fro in our lives and in this church today. And that you would cause it to bear fruit. Lord, we pray for enduring conviction of our sins of pride. God, thank you for your love. Thank you that you don't leave us in our sin. Lord, please speak to us from your word and change us. Lord, make us like our Savior. Lord Jesus, we love you. And in your name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together. And totally, 100% unplanned, let's sing How Great Thou Art. Oh Lord.